that. That's a big question. It's something that we'll be investigating in today's message today. Um, I'd like to add my welcome to Ben's, especially if you're a newcomer and it's your first time with us today. Warm welcome to you from Cooper's Plains Evangelical Church. Um, just a few little things before we get started. Um, I just want to make you aware of something we do before our service on Sunday mornings, 8.45. Um, if you want to see change happen in this church, if you want to see us loving God and making disciples even better, then I invite you to come and pray with me. Uh, Sunday mornings, we do a little prayer meeting just for half an hour before the service. So I invite you all to come pray with me, 8.45 on Sunday. So you're all welcome to come along to that. Um, a few other little things. If you've got your Bibles, make sure you keep them open as we go through God's Word together. Uh, I keep encouraging you guys to bring physical paper Bibles if you have them. I reckon that's the best in terms of not getting distracted. Um, and, but if you don't have a Bible with you today, that's fine. Passages will be coming up on the screen. And also, lastly, if you have questions from this sermon or any other sermons in the series, please email me. I'd love to hear your questions because I, I love to see you guys tackling the Word yourself as well and coming up with these questions. I'd love to help you try and understand it. Okay, let's get into it. Now, friends, let me start by asking you a question, um, and that is, uh, are you a troublemaker? Who here is a troublemaker? Or maybe should I say, are you sitting next to a troublemaker? You can put up your hand if you're, yep, there's more hands. <laughs> Excellent. Now, now, you might, you know, you, some of us are natural troublemakers. We enjoy that sort of thing. But for most of us, that's not our natural tendency, isn't it? Like we, we don't like going around making trouble. We don't like going around making problems. We don't like controversy. We try to avoid conflict. Because who likes having fights? Who likes having arguments? It's, it's not a pleasant experience, is it? And for many of us, we come from Asian backgrounds too. And there's that added element of uh, the family expectations, uh, keeping the peace, harmony. They're very important in Asian culture, aren't they? So we're raised in a way where conflict um, and anything involving conflict and controversy, we want to stay as far away from as possible. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But did you know that Jesus Christ, he was one of the biggest troublemakers in history. He didn't shy away from conflict. He came and he caused controversy everywhere that he went. He caused problems everywhere that he went. And today we're going to look at this passage and see why. Why did he do that? Why did he come stirring up such a mess everywhere that he went? Now, just to give us a little bit of context, um, we've looked at Mark 1 last week, which gave us an introduction to the book, and we've seen a little bit of who Jesus is already, that he is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the one that we've been waiting for, or the Jews have been waiting for all this time. And we've seen already that he has some amazing authority, authority over sickness, authority over demons even. And we've got massive expectations, huge expectations. What is Jesus going to do now? As we get into chapter 2, what we see him doing is starting to cause a bit of trouble. Uh, the first two episodes we saw uh, from Nathan's reading before was um, uh, two, two episodes where he heals a paralytic and he also goes and he eats with sinners. And that causes huge problems. And we're going to come back to these passages, uh, those two particular events, because that's where I want to land today. But just keep in mind for now that those two events have happened. He's causing problems. He's healing. He healed a paralytic. He ate with sinners. And that's causing issues. But he continues to go on and cause more and more issues. And we'll actually pick it up from verse 18, where we see the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees fasting. Now, what's fasting? Fasting is um, going for a period of time without food. 
And back then, um, in the Jewish tradition, it became sort of an act of somber devotion towards God. Um, uh, the Pharisees, the religious teachers of the time, had actually taken it to the next level where it was almost as if the more you fasted, the more holy you were. It was like a sign of uh, religious excellence. You know? And even John the Baptist, his disciples had gotten in on this and everyone was fasting. And people came to Jesus' disciples and Jesus and said, Jesus, why, why aren't your disciples fasting? Everyone else is fasting. All the religious people are fasting. What's going on here? Don't you care? And Jesus gives them this reply. He gives them this reply in Mark 2, verse 19. Mark 2, verse 19. Have a look in your Bibles if you've got them with me. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. And what Jesus is saying is this. You, all of you, you're, you're fasting, you're being religious, you're, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, you're calling upon the presence of God, you're repenting, but you, amidst all of this stuff, you're missing the point because you've got your timing all wrong because the things that you're actually preparing for, the things you're waiting for, they're, they're here right now. Can you remember Jesus' first words in Mark 1? He said, the time is here, it's now. The kingdom of God has come near. That's what he's saying. The time is now. The time for the new age to come and for the old age to be done away with. And it's not a time to sit around and be somber and religious. It's a time of celebration and a time of joy. And what better illustration of that than a wedding? A wedding. We celebrated a wedding yesterday. And... uh, a warm welcome to our newlyweds, Will and Alexa. Let's welcome them. Back. It's a day of celebration, a day of joy. What better illustration of celebration and joy than that? And wedding banquets, right? Like wedding feasts, they're a big one. Um, here's a, a picture of a wedding feast. This is a Chinese wedding feast. Um, so when you, it's, it's a time of celebration and joy. Personally, I, I don't like Chinese wedding feasts because I can't eat seafood. And the better the wedding feast, the more seafood there is. But everyone on my table, they love it because they get extra. And my wife, she eats extra. She eats double everything. But even if you're not on my table, if you're at a wedding feast, it's a time of celebration and joy, isn't it? It's it's celebration. Yeah? And the food's one thing, but it's a celebration of that union of the groom and the bride. Celebration and joy. And Jesus is saying that I am the bridegroom and I am here. And when you see the bridegroom, when, when, when I saw Will dressed up in his suit yesterday, it's not a time to be somber and serious. It's a time of celebration because it means the wedding's around the corner. The time is now. And Jesus is saying, I'm the, I'm the bridegroom. This wedding's around the corner and my bride is a church. It's the people I've come for. And that union is about to happen. This is the new age that he's ushering in. And it's so much better than the old. So much better. But amidst all this celebration, there's a somber little note. There's a somber little note. And you'll see that um, in verse 21. Verse 21. Oh, sorry. Um, Verse 20. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. And here in Mark's Gospels, the first little hint of Jesus' death, the first little hint, 
At the time, the, the people listening probably didn't have any idea what's going on, but here's the first little hint of Jesus' death. And right from the start, we see this is part of his plan. This is part of his plan. It's something we need to keep in mind. The bridegroom will be taken away from them, and that will be a time of sorrow. But here, Jesus' speech continues. And we pick it up from verse 21 and verse 22, where he tells two seemingly cryptic story. So let's have a look at verse 21 and 22. Have a look at them with me. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise a new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Jesus comes and he tells these two stories and his point is this. I'm doing away with the old. All right? I'm bringing in something new and it's not something that you can just patch over the old. It, it can't coexist with the old. It's something completely new. It's revolutionary. And he's saying things, I'm doing away with the old ways, the old, uh, the old age, which is characterized by religious observance and ceremonies and doing things and uh, this sense of having to please God through your actions and religion. He's doing away with that. He's bringing in something new. He's bringing in the age of the kingdom. The age of the kingdom of God. Remember, this is the message that Jesus has come to preach. The kingdom of God. And this is radically different from anything we've seen before. It can't coexist with the old. It's radically different. And which is why when he brings this revolutionary message, everywhere he goes, he causes trouble. He causes problems. The next episodes we see... Uh, on, the day, on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is a holy day for the Jews where they weren't supposed to do any work. It was supposed to be a day that they set apart for God, which is not a bad thing. That's in the law. Um, but the Pharisees, the religious teachers, have amped it up to another level where they had put all these extra rules on top. Things like, um, on the Sabbath, if you had a certain number of steps that you could take away from your home before it became work. All right? any, anything under that's okay, but once you took one step further, that's, that's work. You know? All these religious things that were put on you to please God. And here, uh, there's two accounts in uh, Mark 2, uh, one in Mark 2 and one at the start of Mark 3, where Jesus actually, he breaks the law. The first is, he goes through a grain field with his disciples and they start plucking little bits of grain and crushing it and eating it because they're hungry. And the Pharisees pop up and they're like, what are you doing? You're breaking the law. And the next is when Jesus enters the synagogue and he sees um, a man with a withered hand, a man in need of healing on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are waiting to see what he'll do. And he, he, Jesus heals a man. He does what is good on the Sabbath. But in, in their eyes, he has broken the law. He's broken the law. The Pharisees thought that Jesus was a huge troublemaker. But really, what the problem was, was them. They had missed the whole point. They had missed the whole point. Because the whole point of the law, the whole point of this system instituted in the past, anyway, was this. Jesus sums it up later like this. It's to love God and to love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. 
And ironically, by putting all these extra rules in place, um, the Pharisees had actually limited and actually stopped people from loving like they were supposed to. That was the intention of the law. They had completely missed the point. But Jesus comes and he causes trouble. He breaks the law because he does what is good on the Sabbath. He loves. And he's saying this. The old ways, they're going. I'm bringing in a new kingdom which is not characterized by religious observance and following rules and ceremonies. No. It's characterized by your heart. And isn't that a fantastic thing to think about in the future? This a reality, a world. Think about this. Wouldn't you rather be in a world where people don't just do things because they're rules that are enforced on them and they do them begrudgingly and out of guilt or obligation, but people do things driven by love? Wouldn't you rather be part of that world? Well, that's the reality that Jesus is bringing in. The new kingdom age. This is the way of the kingdom. The old has gone. The new has come. And is so much better. That's what Jesus is saying. But, unfortunately, the, the Pharisees, they don't really see things in such a positive light. And if you look at chapter 3, verse 6 with me, have a look at what it says. Chapter 3, verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. How they might kill Jesus. The Pharisees were plotting his death as a response to Jesus' teaching. That's how much problems he was coming to make. That's how much trouble he was stirring up. And friends, at this point, you have to ask, we have to stop and ask something. We have to ask, what's, what's going on here? What's going on here? We saw in chapter 1 Jesus coming, and he's the Messiah, right? He's the anointed one. He's the Son of God. We've got massive expectations of what he'll do. He's got amazing authority. He comes preaching this amazing message. But people want to kill him. Things aren't going according to plan, are they? We've got amazing expectations of what he'll do, but people are rejecting him. They're opposing him. His mission is not something that they want to be a part of. It's something that's offensive. This isn't part of the plan. What's going on here? He's supposed to come in and be the king. But despite all this opposition, Jesus' mission continues. He continues to heal. He continues to cast out demons. He continues to preach because this is why he has come. He even commissions 12, the 12 apostles, to be a part of his mission. 12 men to come along with him and preach and cast out demons. And he gives them authority to do so, to continue his mission. Because despite the opposition, this mission needs to happen. And it gets to the point where even um, Jesus' own family comes out and opposes him. His own family comes out and opposes him. So Mark 3, verse 20 and 21. Mark 3, verse 20 and 21. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he, he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. 
Can you imagine if your own family, your own flesh and blood thought you were lunatic, that you belonged in a mental asylum? That was the opposition that Jesus was stirring up. That was the troubles that he was causing. And it didn't stop there because the Pharisees came back and as if they hadn't done enough, they give the ultimate insult to him. They give the ultimate insult and that's in verse 20 and 22. 22, sorry. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. And what an insult. They're calling Jesus the Holy One of God. They call him the one that's fighting for Satan. What an insult. And Jesus rebukes them. He shuts them down. They don't have any argument. Like, why would Satan be fighting against himself, casting out demons? And he condemns the Pharisees. He says, you, you guys have committed the unforgivable sin, blaspheming the Son of God, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He shuts them down. But you can see this opposition that's coming. Now, Jesus is going through a lot of difficulty. He's causing a lot of problems. And when you think about it, you have to ask yourself, why would he come? Why would he do this? When you think about the, the law, all right, what, how the Jews used to live, right, which is following rules, right, essentially following rules and regulations and law, if Jesus wanted to, he could have fit the mold perfectly, right? He could have come, he's, because he's perfect, he's not sinful, he could have come, he could have actually fulfilled every single one of those laws, right? He could have been revered in society, he would have been, you know, promoted to the highest office possible, everyone would have admired him as this holy righteous man, right? He didn't need to come and cause problems for himself like this where his own family thought he was a lunatic and which drove people to try and kill him. So why did Jesus go to all this effort? Why did he cause so many problems? Well, let me tell you. Jesus came causing big problems because he came to deal with our biggest problem. Let me say that again. Jesus came causing big problems because he came to deal with our biggest problem. At this point, I want to take you back to the start of chapter 2. I want to really camp out here for the rest of our time together. And in this, this little episode, we see Jesus. He's in a house, uh, Simon's house in Capernaum, and he's preaching. No surprise, because that's what he came to do. Preach, right? So he's preaching, and there's a massive crowd there. They're filling up the house. Uh, there's no space. Even at the doorway, there's, there's no space for people to get in anymore. But four men come and they're, they're carrying a stretcher. And on the stretcher is their friend. Uh, he's paralyzed, he can't walk, and it's clear what they've come for. They, they want healing. And they walk up um, to the house, but they see this massive crowd between them and Jesus. How will they get to Jesus? You can imagine the, the four mates turning to each other and saying, you know, we haven't come all this way for nothing. We've got to do something. So, so they get creative. So they, they look for another way into the house and they spot it. It's the roof. So in those days, the houses in Capernaum were sort of like single-story structures with an external roof. Um, and on the top of the roof, people you know, used to sleep or do a bit of work. So it was a sturdy structure you could actually get up to. So they went up the staircase, got onto the roof, and they thought, we've got to get down there. So they start digging. They start digging. And I don't know what you think about this story. You might have heard it before, but uh, this roof, it's, it's a sturdy structure, right? 
but they start demolishing the roof. These four guys demolishing the roof. They're, they're, they're taking all the dried mud and clay away. They're taking all the branches and strong reeds that are forming the roof, and they're, they're trying to break through. You can imagine what's going on in the house. Everyone's like, what is that scratching noise? What's, what's going on up there? And you can only imagine what Simon's thinking, what's going on to my house? But they keep demolishing the roof. They, they, they need to get their friend in there. So they keep digging and digging and digging, and eventually they break through, with a shower of dirt on everyone beneath them. You can imagine that happened right now, right there, I'd say, right at right the section. Dirt showers down, and the men break through. And then they lower their friends down, their, their paralyzed friend down on the stretcher with some ropes, and they lay him down before Jesus. And Jesus looks at the man, and he's, he thinks to himself, man, an incre- incredible faith. What faith these guys have. And he turns... And looks at the paralyzed man and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And at this point, you can imagine the, the crowd watching. Everyone's probably confused. They're thinking, Jesus, this guy didn't come. He, it's clear, right? He can't walk. This guy came for healing. What are you talking about? What's, why, are you, why are you talking about forgiving sins for? So all these people are confused, but amongst these people are people who aren't just confused, they're people who are angry, and that's the scribes, religious experts of the law. And they, and they start saying to themselves in that, silently in their own hearts, they're thinking to how dare he? How dare he? This is blasphemy. How dare he declare forgiveness of sins? This, only God can do something like that. How dare he? But Jesus knows their hearts, and he turns to them. And he says this. Have a look at uh, Mark 2, verse 8 to 11. Mark 2, verse 8 to 11. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that he, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. And that's what he did. The man got up, rolled up his mat, put it under his arm, and walked out through the astonished crowd. And everyone there was amazed, amazed, and they praised God. It's an incredible story, isn't it? Incredible story. And in this story, we see huge, huge truths. Can you remember last week I said, as we come to the book of Mark, the questions we need to be bringing are, are these. Who is Jesus? Why has he come? And why should I care? Right? And here in this episode, we get answers. We start getting a picture of what the answers are to this. And the first one is, who is God? Who is God? Well, Uh, Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Can you remember the Pharisees, why they were upset? They said, how dare you? You know, how dare you? They're thinking in their hearts, how dare you forgive sins? Because forgiveness of sins is something that belongs to God alone. And you know what? They're right. They're right. Because God is the one that has been offended. So he is the one that needs to forgive sins. That's how it works. Because of our sins against God, because of the way that we've rejected him, and told him to get out of our life, even though he's given us everything that we could ever want as a loving father, and we've just thrown it back in his face and rejected him. 
We've hurt him. We've offended him. Right? And he is the only one that can grant forgiveness for that. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Imagine Ben, our service leader, um, was up here, and then Claire, our music leader. Um, imagine, I don't know why this would happen, but uh, Ben, Ben's standing here, and Claire's here, and then Claire slaps Ben in the face for no reason. No reason whatsoever. And Ben, rightfully, is offended. He's been hurt. He's offended. But then I come up, and I say to Claire, Claire, it's okay, I forgive you. I forgive you. It's all right. Ben, all right, I forgive and Ben is offended. He's hurt. And me saying that Claire's forgiven, it doesn't do anything, does it? It doesn't work like that. Only the offended party can forgive. That's how it works. So in order for sins to be forgiven, God is the one that needs to forgive. And right here, we see Jesus declaring forgiveness of sins. We see him forgiving sins. And he proves it by healing the man as well as to say... He has amazing authority over sickness and he has amazing authority over sins. Jesus forgives sins, which means that he is God himself. And not only that, not only that, Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man in this passage. I don't know if you noticed that little term before. He says, I'm the Son of Man. And he links that with his authority to forgive sins. And that that little phrase doesn't mean too much to us now, but for everyone back then, they're thinking something. When someone says the Son of Man, they're thinking about this. Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, it'll be coming up on the screen. Daniel 7, which is an Old Testament book. It's a vision of Daniel. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. A seemingly innocent little term, son of man, but when Jesus declares himself to be the son of man, he's saying he is the king. The king with all authority and dominion and power. The conquering king. That's what the Son of Man means. Do you see that last line? His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Jesus is saying, I'm the conquering king with all authority. Authority over sin itself. Jesus is God. And Jesus is the Son of Man. And what did this God-man, this Son of Man, come to do? Why did he come? Why did he come? Well, friends, when I ask you to talk about what you think the biggest problem in the world is, I wonder what you're talking about with each other. Um, Maybe it was famine, poverty, war. Maybe it was gender inequality. Maybe it was um, climate change. Maybe it's a refugee crisis. There's so many problems in this world. Or maybe you're thinking a bit closer to home. You're thinking about sickness, something personally you've gone through or people around you have gone through a chronic illness, maybe it's mental health, depression, anxiety, maybe it's loneliness. There are so many problems in this world. And all those things I've just listed are real and significant problems. These are huge problems. But let me tell you something. These are just symptoms. They're just the outer workings of the biggest problem. And that's sin. 
sin. Sin is our rebellion against God, our rejection of God, the fact that we've cut ourselves off from Him, we've rejected Him, we don't want anything to do with Him, right? we've offended Him, as I said before. We said to get out of our lives, I'm going to do things my way. And because of that, there's consequences. If God is God and we've chosen to treat Him like that, there's consequences. There's consequences in this world, all the things you see around us, the brokenness, the sickness, the death, that's a consequence of our sin. We brought this onto the world. This is, this, this is on us. Right? There's consequences for sin. But not only that, there's not just consequences in this world. There's consequences for the time to come. There's eternal consequences. We've chosen to cut ourselves off from God. We've chosen to ruin our relationship with God, which means we stand under His anger. And that's eternal. That's punishment. That's suffering. And that is our biggest problem. Sin is our biggest problem. Sin is our biggest problem. So forgiveness of sins is our biggest need. Forgiveness of sins is our biggest need. When, when the four friends brought the paralyzed man to Jesus, they were thinking, man, what our, what our friend needs is to walk again. He needs healing, but Jesus knows better. He knows what the biggest need is, and that is forgiveness of sins. That's why he came, causing so many problems, because the old ways, they could never deal with this issue, right? Forgiveness of sins was not possible, but Jesus brings in a new kingdom, a new kingdom, a new king, where forgiveness of sins is now available, where we can be reconciled back into relationship with God, our Father, where our rejection, our offense towards God can be, can, be, can be healed, can be done away with, where we can know God again and be known by Him. Reconciliation back into the family. And that means life. Life, real life. Friends, forgiveness of sins is our need for all of us. For all of us. Now, I guess the next natural thing to ask is, how do we get it? How do we get in on this forgiveness? If this really is our need, how, how, do, we, how do we become a part? How do we take part in this? Well, I'm going to pick up the narrative in verse 2, verse uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Okay? Chapter 2, verse 13. And here, uh, I'll give you a quick overview. We see Jesus calling another disciple, and this is a guy called Levi. And that's nothing unusual, but the thing about Levi is that he's a tax collector. And I, you, we need to understand the cultural context here. Tax collectors are the scum of the earth. All right? And I'm not talking about Truman working for the ATO. <laughs> right? That's not what I'm talking about here. Things were very different back then. Very, very different. Right? Tax collectors, like, think about it. No one likes paying taxes. No one likes paying taxes. But imagine if your taxes were going to the enemy who was ruling over you. That's what's happening with the Jews. The, the Roman Empire is over them, and they're paying taxes, and they're going to the enemy. They're getting no benefits from them. And the worst thing is, the people collecting these taxes were fellow Jews, fellow countrymen. That's why these guys were hated. They were scum of the earth. They were traitors to their own country. 
They were disqualified from any rights in Jewish culture. They couldn't, they couldn't vote, they couldn't uh, take part in the legal system. They, they were outcasts because they betrayed their own nation. They were the worst of the worst. And here Jesus comes along and he says to one of them, Come, be my disciple. And not only that, he goes and eats with this man and he has a party with this guy's friends, all the other tax collectors, all the other low-life scum of the earth. You know, can you imagine that sort of meeting? Like uh, meeting with all the underworld figures coming together, having a feast. And rightfully so, the, the Pharisees, they, they say, what is Jesus doing? Why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? How, how can he do this? And Jesus brings them this reply in Mark 2, verse 17. Mark 2, verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, remember, sin is our biggest problem. So forgiveness of sins is our biggest need, which means that Jesus came not for the right, but for sinners. He came for sinners. As I say these things, some of you might be thinking to myself, thinking to yourself, well, that's not me. So, like, Jesus didn't come for me. I actually am one of the righteous, so Jesus doesn't need to save me. Um, I'll stop listening now. Maybe some of you are thinking that. You might not admit it. But uh, let me respectfully say to you, stop kidding yourself. Because there is no one righteous. Not even one. That's what God's word tells us. If you show me one perfect day in your life, maybe I'll start to be convinced a little bit. But God's word tells us, no one is righteous. And the only thing that makes us think like that is our own pride. right? Our own pride thinking that we're better than we are. No one is righteous. And on the flip side of that, there's, there's a whole bunch of us who are thinking, well, maybe Jesus came for sinners, but he didn't come for ones like me. I've done things and I've said things that no one can forgive, not even Jesus. Jesus wouldn't even want, he wouldn't want anything to do with me. Well, again, can I say to you that you're wrong? Because Jesus came for the lowest of low. He came for sinners, no matter how bad you are, no matter who you are, Jesus came for you. He came for sinners. Because this is our biggest problem. He brought the biggest solution. And the thing about this passage is, um, it's, it's pretty amazing because you know what you have to do to for- receive forgiveness? You ready for this? Nothing. Nothing. You don't have to do to receive forgiveness. That's the point of Jesus coming to call sinners, right? He calls sin- He doesn't say once you re- once you reach this certain standard of moral purity, once you reach this standard of religious observance, once you do all these things, then come to me. Then I'll accept you. No, He comes for sinners just as they are, just as they are. It's not about doing. He gives forgiveness as a gift. A gift. This is what gifts are. They're just given. 
Now, this might sound too good to be true, and we're very suspicious in our day and age, aren't we? Um, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You've heard that saying. I've got a friend down in Sydney. He's got a son. Uh, his son's name's Nathan as well. And he was telling me the story about how his son Nathan received a, a toy on Christmas from his grandma one day, a, l- a little toy truck. And he opened the present. He got the truck. And the first thing his son Nathan said was this, what do I have to do to get this? That's the first thing he said. And sometimes we think like that too as well. When we get something good, right, it, it's too good to be true. It can't be free. Right? We, we must have to do something for it. But no, not here. Jesus says, this is a gift. I come for sinners. I come for people just as they are. And on our part, if you want to say we have to do something, it's this. It's, it's to just have open hands to receive the gift as it comes in. That's it. Open hands to receive this gift of forgiveness. Trust, trusting in Jesus that the fact that he is the one that is able to forgive sins and that he has done that on the cross and just receiving that gift of forgiveness, that's, that's it. So do you have open hands? Or are they closed, rejecting the gift that Jesus has given us? Friends, this is grace. This is what we call grace, an undeserved, undeserved gift. As we finish, friends, I just one verse that I just want to finish our time on. And that's Mark 2, verse 12. This is right after Jesus has healed the paralytic, and this is what he says, and this is what the passage says. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. They amazed everyone, This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Friends, are you bored with Jesus? Are you bored with him? Do you read a story like this? Do you hear me talking a story about this and go, ah, I've heard this one before. You know, it doesn't really do much for me anymore. Are you bored with him? Or are you amazed like this crowd seeing Jesus and him declaring who he is, seeing what he does, are you amazed at who Jesus is? Are you amazed that he brings forgiveness of sins and this is a free gift? Are you amazed at that, friends? I would love for us to recover our amazement of Jesus. I know, it's, I know so often we, we, we don't feel like that, you know. These things just going one year out the other, but I'd love for us to recover our amazement of Jesus by really just looking at who he is and what he's done. This is amazing stuff. And I fear that we've lost that. So are you amazed at Jesus? I pray that amazement will grip us and that this amazement will drive us forward to live our lives for Jesus Christ. Like, like we heard in our interview with Aileen, which is encouraging, that this amazement of what Jesus has done and who he is will drive us forward to live our lives for him. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, maybe even that will, that will give us the confidence, that will give us the drive to cause a little bit of trouble ourselves, that we might be willing to cause some problems for the sake of telling others about the solution to their biggest problem. Let me pray. 
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and what he has come to do and who he is. He's truly amazing, Father. And forgive us when we haven't been gripped by this, where we've just forgotten how amazing this free gift is. And we do pray, Father, that we may go forth from today, um, responding to Jesus if we need to, to actually, op- actually have open hands to receive this gift, repenting of sins if that's needed, that we may be just driven forward by what Jesus has done to live for you, even if it causes problems in this world, Father, because people need a solution to their biggest problem. And we pray these things, not for our sake, but for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Susanna. I'm up up here today to lead us in prayer. Uh, Today we're praying for Indonesia, as, as you've heard in the news. Um, They've just had an earthquake, or a few, and um, they're still recovering from it and they're still trying to find survivors. Um, We're also praying for the drought condition in rural Australia that are affecting farmers and their families and the community. And last of all, we're praying for our Sunday school ministry in church. Um, So if you are in agreement with each of the prayer points, I invite you to um, say amen with me. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of creation, of which we are a part of. Thank you for caring and loving us so much that you sent your Son to atone for our sins. We thank you because of this we can come to you so freely in prayer. This morning we lift up to you Indonesia and those affected by the